Coming up right now, the newest episode from Carr, Gwyn, and Ode on Three Pagans and a Cat. Hey folks, CJ Grimm here from Poking Dead Things. It's a hard job doing what we do, and it can get kind of gross. We know that you work hard too, so I'm here to tell you that at the end of a hard day, nothing beats a hot bath and a cold beer. So treat yourself right, head to Twisted Willow Soap Company, and indulge in a bath bomb with your favorite six-pack. Remember, the only girly thing about a bath bomb are the sounds you're going to make in excitement. Twisted Willow Soap Company. Body. Mind. Soul. Welcome to Spooky Stories, the 64th episode of Three Pagans and a Cat. No opening today, because this is a storytelling episode, spooky style. You may call me Ode. You can call me Carr. I'm Ode's father. Merry meet. My name is Gwyn, Ode's mother. Let's start with all our housekeeping. <laughs> yes. Yes. Let's do that. New patrons. New patrons. We have two new kittens. Hello, kittens. Greetings, we kittens. love you, kittens. And Shokura, who is a new cat. Hey. hey! Thank you, Shakura. Yeah. This is a spooky stories episode. Mm-hmm. This episode was suggested to us by Mother Multiverse. That's right. Yep. Who well, is, oddly enough, is not on. Is not, no. is not live with us is in the Discord right now, but that's okay. So, I mean, there's not a whole lot to say about this other than we're gonna we're gonna read spooky tales, and it's in honor, obviously, of Halloween and Samhain. Mm-hmm. Probably more Halloween more than Halloween, anything. Yeah. <laughs> so it's in honor of Halloween that we just wanted to share our favorite. Spooky stories with you. Yes, these so, are not explicitly pagan stories. They're just nope. spooky. They're just spooky stories. And here's the thing: I, I'm pretty sure that Gwen and Ode have written their own versions of these stories. I yes. well, I, I I'm retelling the legend of Sleepy Hollow, okay. and one I got from it's a true tale Ooh. that I am reading in the words of the writer. So I will not be retelling that one. Okay, both of mine are actually just going to be read mm-hmm. um, from their. Yes. Versions. Yep. And we'll the original you, text, because yeah. they're they're out of copyright. So. Yeah, yep, so we didn't have to worry about it. <laughs> we will have our segments, though. Yes, yes. yes. we're going to be doing segments. our segments, because that's what we do now. We do yep. those at the that's end right. of the month. So sit back, turn off your lights if you dare, light a candle, and listen to our spooky tales. Spooky tales. That is the mood, Ode. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to be starting with The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. This is going to be a, an abbreviated tale. I don't know if you've ever read the full story, but it's long as fuck, y'all. And it's written in very... Ye old fashioned terms mm-hmm. with a lot of describing like all the food that's involved. Here's a quick introduction to the main players of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Our protagonist is Ichabod Crane, who is the schoolmaster, a small farming community. He is kind of a lech. A little bit. And a bit of a prick, honestly. <laughs> so he teaches the children. He's reportedly like a pretty good schoolmaster. Not exceptional, but you know, he's teaching the kids their sums or whatever. He doesn't have any lodgings of his own. He, every week, lodges at a different student's house. So the parents have to put him up. And that's part of like the arrangement for him to provide... Headmastery? Yes, headmastery mm-hmm. at this community. So he always tries to conspire to be at the house which has the richest foods or the prettiest daughters. Yes. Soldier. <laughs> and the house which he most wants to live in forever is the house of the Von Tassels. Mm, he's always looking to marry someone. Yes, Katrina Von Tassel. 
is the marriage-age daughter of the Von Tassel family, which is a very prosperous farming family in the area. And Ichabod even, like, Katrina's nice, and he's into her, but that's not really his, like, primary motivation. What he wants is her house and her fortune and her farm. He's like... And her mother's cooking. Yes, and her mother's cooking. Ichabod Crane is a gold digger, basically, from ye olden days. But Katrina Von Tassel is already being courted by a strapping young hero from the community called Brom Bones. Brom is a very energetic young man. He's got, like, a fancy horse. And he gets into, you know, rough and tumble scrapes with his boys. But everybody loves him. He's a good boy. He's just mischievous. He's not, like, a bully. He's just, you know, mischievous. He's, He's full of... Young high spirits. That's right. Vim and vigor. Vim and vigor. And he is courting Katrina Von Tassel. Out openly, like he is explicitly courting Katrina Von Tassel. Mm-hmm. Ichabod Crane is not explicitly courting Katrina Von Tassel. Ichabod Crane has a side gig where he teaches singing. So he arranges to be Katrina Von Tassel's voice instructor and uses that to court her, like, under the radar. Which Brom Bones, understandably, does not love. Because if Ichabod was courting Katrina, like, officially, they could get in a scrap and, like, sort it out. But he's not. So there's nothing Brom Bones can actually do about this situation. And Katrina just seems to be sort of going along with it. Mm-hmm. Like, she's she's leading she's leading them both along. I think she enjoys the attention. Uh-huh, yeah. Katrina's... Katrina's a little bit of a slut, not to not to slut shame or anything, but she's she's definitely enjoying <laughs> both of these men being very into her and her mom's cooking. So Brahm and Ichabod have this little rivalry going that never is allowed to sort of boil out into the open. The Von Tassels throw a party to which both men are invited because basically everyone in the community is invited. They're just having a big party, and the Von Tassels are showing off their wealth mm. essentially. Then there are people from. All the local communities around, including the community of Sleepy Hollow. Because that's not actually where the story takes place. The story takes place in a little farming community outside Sleepy Hollow. Ah. But the residents from Sleepy Hollow come to the Von Tassel's party. And they are telling spooky stories. Because Sleepy Hollow is a place that's very, very haunted. Mm. So they're telling spooky stories as, you know, the night wears on. And one of the spooky stories they tell is about the Headless Horseman, or the Hessian, as he is sometimes called, who races people through the night and chases them to their death if he can catch them, and tethers his horse in the church graveyard among the tombstones every night. And Ichabod Crane, who's a bit credulous, despite his, you know, his big fancy university upbringing, is very spookened by these tales. While Brom Bones is like, yes, I met the Headless Horseman one night. Mm-hmm, he rode all the way down here and I raced him uh, for a bowl of punch, and I would have won too, except when I got to the bridge... He just vanished in a puff of smoke, which obviously Katrina Von Tassel is very impressed with this tale of Daring Duke. Well, one would be. But Ichabod Crane, even though he doesn't have a good story to tell, sticks it out and stays until like the very, very end of the night when, you know, basically the hosts are trying to get everybody to leave. Mm-hmm. And Ichabod Crane is still sticking around because he wants to have a private audience with Katrina. So he finally manages to get his private audience with Katrina. And it doesn't say exactly what happens at this private audience. All it does say is that Ichabod Crane leaves the house very dejected. The implication is that he's pressed his suit to Katrina and been rejected. So when he finally came out and said, hey, Katrina, I would like to marry you, she said, no, thank you. 
<laughs> Please leave my house. <laughs> so he gets on this old nag, which he borrowed from the farmer he's living with this week, and he starts heading for home. But it's very, very late, and there's no one else on the roads anymore. And he's heard all these spooky stories all night. So you know, he passes a spooky tree. And the spooky tree spooks him out. And he passes an owl, and the owl hoots and spooks him out. And so he starts riding faster and faster and getting more and more antsy. And as he's riding, he realizes he's hearing another rider, which is peculiar for this time of night. So he looks around, and there's nobody there, which is a shame, because Ichabod would actually not mind some company on the road tonight. So he keeps riding, and he keeps hearing the sounds of another horse right behind him. But there's no one there. So he rides a little faster. And so does the other person, the mysterious hoofbeats that he can't find the source for. So he rides a little faster, and so does the other person. So he turns around again, and finally he sees, way in the distance, much farther than the sounds would suggest, there is another rider who is gaining on him. A big black shape on a big black horse that he can't identify. So Ichabod Crane, who just heard all about the Headless Horseman, starts riding real fast. Perilously fast. Much faster than this old nag can really, like, sustain over a long time. And the figure behind him picks up remarkable speed, and shoots right up next to him. Ichabod can confirm, yes, this is absolutely the Headless Horseman. This guy is, like, two feet taller than him, even without the head. <laughs> and a horse has, like, eyes aflame, and is probably going to eat his nag. So he, you know, really kicks the nag in the side and encourages it to get going, because he knows if he can get to the bridge that Brom Bones raced the Headless Horseman to, if he can get over that bridge, he'll be safe. He just has to get to the bridge. If this horse dies as soon as it gets over the bridge, he doesn't care as long as he gets over that fucking bridge. Gets to the bridge, gets onto the bridge, thinks, I'm there, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna escape, I'm gonna survive, and then I'm leaving this place and never coming back. Turns around to catch one more look at the headless horseman, and the man's hefting something in one hand, still barreling full tilt towards him, and whips it at Ichabod just as he's crossing the bridge, strikes him in the back of the head, and he falls off the horse. As he's falling, the rider passes over the bridge in a whirlwind. And that's where the story leaves Ichabod. And the next morning, the farmer goes out because his nag hasn't come back and neither is the schoolmaster. And he's not that concerned with the schoolmaster, but he would like the horse. So he, you know, wrestles up some boys and they go looking mm -hmm. for his nag. And they find it right at the bridge, just chilling, eating some grass, very relaxed, that there's no Ichabod. But there is a smashed pumpkin, which is interesting. So they, you know, they mount a little search because Ichabod should have had the horse and the horse is here and Ichabod is not. And they never find hide nor hair of Ichabod Crane. No trace of him whatsoever, anywhere. Except there is tell from a farmer a few years later, coming down from the north, that Ichabod Crane has been seen in that area and has learned law and become a politician and so on and so forth. But the old wives of Sleepy Hollow know that's horseshit. Ichabod Crane got et by the Headless Horseman. And dragged to hell. And if Brom Bones laughs every time he hears about the pumpkin, well, that's just good sportsmanship. <laughs> Well, and since we're here, Gwen's Garden Gems. Thank nice. you, honey. That was very nice. You're welcome. And oddly enough, tonight I'm going to be speaking about pumpkin. <laughs> I wonder why. I wonder mm. why. All right. So pumpkins are actually, a, a, a obviously it's a gourd, of the gourd family. You can get them in varieties of colors, sizes, shapes, but they are wonderful for many things, both magical as well as medicinal. Some people use them medicinally, as well as for cooking, obviously. I thought I would talk a little bit about planting and growing pumpkins, which they can be a little tricky, 
in in some because they they require certain conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to have pumpkins ready in the fall around this time of year, um, you want to plant them probably midsummer, early to midsummer, I guess, so that they'll they have time to grow. Grow, yeah. So you don't want to plant them in the spring because if you plant them too soon, they'll rot and mm-hmm. you won't have a nice pumpkin. But the seeds you'll want to put in some water so that they can open up a little bit for about an hour. And then you plant them in the ground. Um, they do prefer a sunny spot. And they require an inch of water every week. So you, That's you, a lot of water. you need to really, they need a nice moist soil. They do need some space so that they can grow. And you should, the soil temperature should be at least 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And they need to probably be about an inch deep into the hole. And you can drop three or four seeds into each hole. Pumpkin blossoms require pollination. So you'll want to make sure, and it's the female pumpkin blossoms. They have like a little bulge at the bottom of the base of the flower. You'll want to make sure that they, you either have pollinators, you know, so have some Mm -hmm. flowers around that'll attract bees. And then you'll want to fertilize and thin them out if once they start to grow. But magically speaking, pumpkins can be used for a lot of things. They're very powerful allies, obviously, for protection. Mm-hmm. They are also very good for divination, for fertility, and for prosperity. You can actually use the pumpkin oh, I can seeds. See prosperity. Yeah, yeah, you can use the pumpkin seeds in prosperity magic um yeah because they were long ago in the americas they were used as a bumper crop to make sure that people got through winter because they grow prolifically you know if you take care good care of them they will you will get some nice pumpkins and you get a lot of them and they are one of the few vegetables that while they prefer full sunlight you can have a little bit of shade and they'll still grow gotcha so, so if you have like a like a non-ideal gardening spot, you can probably still you can probably still do it as long as they get enough water and you fertilize them and they're okay. pollinated. You'll probably still get some great some good pumpkins. Cool. Um, I wonder if they'd have would they also be good for health then? Yes, actually they are very good for uh, healing spells. Yeah. Absolutely. And they're, yeah, and they're good for fertility. All kinds of just all kinds of good things. They're good for banishing work. Really? Yeah, it comes from that protection aspect you they're they're good for banishing things that you don't want in your life so yeah so you don't you know a lot of people only think of the pumpkin as useful during halloween and the month of october because obvious reasons but it's actually very useful ally to have throughout the year also if you've never eaten roasted pumpkin seeds they're very good yes and there are 20 different varieties of pumpkin so you know and they have different flavors from sweet to mm-hmm. kind of you want to use it as an ornamental alone. right <laughs> don't eat that there's some eat pumpkins those. you maybe don't want to eat they come in again they come in various colors the the one that's most common are the orange the, the ones orange. can i get a lavender He's, pumpkin well we could paint pumpkin. it lavender okay but <laughs> i've seen the like white pumpkin yeah yeah you can get them from you know you can get green pumpkins and white yeah. pumpkins and orange pumpkins. They're also medicinally, you can use the seeds and you can create an oil that can be used to treat digestive issues and pumpkin seed oil. Yeah, oh. yeah. It's it there's some actual medicinal purpose purposeful uses oh. for pumpkin as well. So and of course then there's the foods because you can you know it's not pie. just pie and muffins and pastry things, but it's also uh you can make soups and stews and, and you can combine Mom, it with other gourds. Yeah, and Gwen makes the thing called dinner in a pumpkin. It's a rice based mm-hmm. meal that is baked inside the pumpkin. And yep. while it's not oh 
Goat's favorite. I happen to like it I, quite a bit. I don't like gourd flavors. I know, I know. <laughs> but luckily, your father does enjoy squash and yes. pumpkin and things like that. I do indeed. So, while the pumpkin may be humble, and people tend to <laughs> humble only... Humble but versatile. Hum, yeah, it is humble but very versatile. People tend to only think of it this time of year, but it's actually something that you can use year-round. The other thing about pumpkins is once they've been harvested... Uh, a pumpkin that is kept in a cool, dry place can last for up three months. And, of course, you know, if you properly can pumpkin, it'll last for much, much longer. Longer than that. So, yeah. So you've, you've got a lot of options. And then, oh, and the seeds. Uh, once they've yes. been roasted and salted, they can last for up to three months. But they won't because you'll eat them. Yes, but they do have to be. <laughs> you do need to make sure that they're properly stored and, and things, obviously. But you yeah. just eat them straight off the pan. Very like me. I know. I know. We love. We, that's one of our favorite things about carving the pumpkin is then once you get all the goop off of the put seeds. Put all the seeds in the, in the oven. You, you put them in the oven and roast them and they're delicious. You eat them. Although this year I think I'm going to put some aside for some yeah, magic. Yeah, for magic. For magical work. Magic bumping. Yeah. That's it for Gwen's Garden Gems. It's time for reviews. Okay. So today we're reviewing a book called Paranormal Parasites by Nick Redfern. And I, I actually enjoyed this book. <laughs> I was not really expecting to. I wish I could say I enjoyed it, but I forgot to read it. Oh, I know. Now I'm going to have to, especially since I, you liked it. It was, I wouldn't call it plausible. <laughs> yeah, no. It was, it's a, it's about, you know, all manner of spookums, Bigfoots and black-eyed children and so forth. Lots of... Black-eyed children from Maine? Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. the black-eyed children. That, that whole phenomenon. Yes. And succubuses and... Succubuses and ancient Shadow and... people and so on. It's a pretty good read. I will say the stories in it are sensationalized, let's say. Yeah, I would, I would definitely say that. I, you know, I, I don't, like I said, I didn't find it super believable. I had a really hard time getting into it. Really? Yeah, but you know, I'm not, you know, into like into spooky stuff, spooky stuff or into anything that seems slightly far-fetched. Yeah. Yeah, and these are definitely far-fetched stories. <laughs> Justin asks, "Wait, I would like a book? How extensive is the bibliography?" <laughs> um, it does have a, a, a pretty a pretty decent bibliography, although he references his own books in the bibliography, <laughs> which is not like good yeah. not good bibliography practice. <laughs> <laughs> when you have to sort, cite yourself as a source, that's questionable. Right, yeah. So yeah, I wouldn't say this is like a, like I wouldn't make it part of anyone's practice. No. But I, I thought it was interesting a, read. Exactly, though. I thought it was an interesting read. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, an interesting collection of of, of spookums, of, right. of paranormal spookums. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'd give it a three, probably. I'd say I'd probably say a two, two yeah. and a half, if I was really being generous. Okay. And if I ever half, read I, it, I'll tell you what I would give it. <laughs> uh, Bill also said, Gwen, you were watching horror movies instead of reading the book. That's true. That's a good point, Bill. That's it for reviews. That's a good one. Nice. Thanks. That was a real nice one. All Your right, turn. my turn. Mm-hmm. All right. So here is The Raven mm-hmm. by Edgar Allan Poe. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of one gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember in bleak December, 
and each separate dying ember wrought this ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow, from my book's sucris of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to the still beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This is it, and nothing more. Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, I said, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scare was sure I heard you, while I opened wide the door, darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into the darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream, and before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token. The only words were spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping, somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something out my window lattice. Let me see, then, what the threat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mine of lord or lady perched above my chamber door perched upon the bust of Pallas above my chamber door, perched and sat and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grace and stern decorum of the countenance it wore. Though my crest be shorn and shaven, though I said art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thou lordly name is on the night Plutonian shore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Such I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer still little meaning, little relevance bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever met was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door. Bird or breast upon the sculpted bust above his chamber door with such a name as nevermore. But the raven sitting lonely on the placid bust spoke only that one word as if his soul in that one word did outpour, nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather when he fluttered. 
till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will lead me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken, my reply so aptly spoken, doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store. Caught from some unhappy master whose unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of the hope that melancholy burden bore of never, nevermore. But the raven still beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushion seat in front of the bird and bust and door. Then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking, fancy of time fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking, nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing, to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining, on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated over. But those velvet-violet lining, with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall pass, ah, nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by the angels he hath sent thee, respite and respite from the memories of Lenore. Quaff, O oh, quaff this kind nephew, and forget this lost Lenore, quoth the raven nevermore. Prophet, I said, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether temptest toss thee here ashore. Desolate all undaunted, on the desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven nevermore. Prophet, I said, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by the heaven that bends above us, by the God we both adore, Tell this soul with sorrow laden, with the distance aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden when the angels named Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, quoth the raven nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or friend, I shrieked upstarting, get thee back into the tempest and the night plutonian shore, leave no black plume as a token, of that lie thou soul hast spoken, leave my loneliness unbroken, quit the bust above my door, take the beak from out of my heart, and take thy form from my door, quoth the raven nevermore. And the raven never flirting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door, and his eyes have all the seeing of the demon that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him steaming through his shadow on the floor, and my soul from out of that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. Nice. Yay!
Everybody in the Discord was was losing their mind. Very excited. Very excited. Very happy. They've called you Darth Carr. Uh The Raven is read by Darth Carr. Yep. They're very, very happy with with your recitation. (laughs) But now I think it's time for... Carr's Feast Table. Carr's Feast Table. (laughs) All right. So I actually have a couple of recipes this week because I thought it would be fun. Sometimes you do a feast, yeah. Right. The first one is slow cooker Swiss steak. And the reason why I'm doing this is because... Oh, um, cask of a Montalato. There it is. In order to uh, bait Montessor, Mm -hmm. who lures uh, Fortuna to his death, Mm -hmm. they use sherry. Uh And slow cooker Swiss steak Ah. includes sherry. Nice. Uh, So anybody who's interested, sherry is a wine fortified after it's fermented with a uh, neutral distilled spirit. Um, and to it's make a, it more alcoholic? Yes, and it is a neutral, or excuse me, it's a crucial ingredient in making Swiss steak. Oh, cool. So you need six medium beef blade steaks, eight ounces of fresh shrooms, thinly sliced mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. Not those kind of shrooms. Uh, one medium onion, sliced thinly, one tablespoon of fresh thyme, minced. Okay. One and a half teaspoons of sweet paprika, three quarters of a cup of chicken stock, a quarter of a cup of dried sherry. Dry is there, is there sherry. a, a non-dry sherry? There is. There's a sweet sherry. Okay. In this case, you want you dry, dry sherry. Yep. Quarter cup of flour, four tablespoons of olive oil, salt and pepper to taste, two tablespoons of fresh parsley, chopped, mm-hmm. and a half a cup of heavy cream. Interesting. So you're going to heat a heavy skillet or saute pan over medium heat and then add in one tablespoon of the olive oil, add the mushrooms, cook and cover for five minutes. Remove the cover and then continue cooking until the mushrooms begin to brown. Remove that pan and place it, place those into the slow cooker. Okay. Okay. Return the pan to heat, season the steaks with salt and pepper, add another tablespoon of oil and brown the blade steaks really nicely. So you want to get that nice crisp crust on it. I have no idea what a blade steak is, but I like the sound of the name. Mm. Yes. Sounds <laughs> uh, And then you're going to remove that to a plate and set it aside so it cools. Not in the slow cooker. Not directly into the slow cooker. Okay. So you return the pan back to the heat. You add the last two tablespoons of olive oil, and you add the sliced onions, the thyme, and the paprika. And you're going to stir and cook that for about a minute. Until the the onions are like... Uh, Not even translucent. You're going to get before that. So um, just warm. (laughs) Yep. And then you're going to add the flour into that and stir well for another minute. You're making like a... So you're making kind of a roux. Okay. Yep. But with onions and thyme and paprika in it. Okay. Then you're going to whisk in the sherry and the chicken stock, uh, scraping all the brown bits at the bottom of the pan and add the entire contents of that pan to the slow cooker. Okay. Then you're going to place the brown steak on top of the mushroom onion mixture, cover and cook on low for six to eight hours. Wow. Then you remove the steaks onto a serving plate, cover with aluminum foil to keep it warm, stir the cream and parsley into the liquid, heat for another 10 minutes, and then ladle the gravy over the steaks. Huh. And that makes a serving of four. Wow. That's a really, like, a long... you got to be invested in that. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. Well, it's a slow cooker, though, so you can kind of, that's like, true. leave it. That's true. That's true. So it's probably going to take you... 30 minutes or so to do all to the prep, prep work. Yeah. And then it's six to eight hours when you can go out and do shopping, you right. know, get go ready for Christmas, for go to work, yeah. whatever, yeah. you know, and then come home. And I then mean, you're going to take all it. the, right, you're going to plate it, but then you're going to make the, 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 the gravy. Yeah, the gravy that goes on. I mean, so that's going to take you another 15 minutes or so. So really you're only going to spend about an hour like max, total yeah. time. The rest of it's in slow cooker. Or like Lorelai says, you know, drink the sherry, forget you can the cook cooking. without it. <laughs> right, okay. 
so my second meal or my well, second, second component. component is actually from Bram Stoker's Dracula. Ooh. Right. Jonathan Harker recounts a meal that he especially enjoyed on his journey through Transylvania. And this is a quote that said... Remember, it says garlic? <laughs> it says... I had for dinner, or rather supper, a chicken done up some way with red pepper, which was very good but thirsty. I asked the waiter, and he said it was called paprika hendel, and that as it was the national dish. I should be able to get it anywhere along the Carpathian. Hmm. So this is one I found. Okay. So it's actually chicken paprikash. Oh, right. So two to two and a half pound of chicken pieces, preferably thighs and legs, which is dark meat. And that's because it has much more moisture in it. It's Um, more succulent. So I must Um, simply endure. If it's done right, because you're chopping it up, Uh you're going to remove all the sinewy tendons and that kind of stuff. The parts I don't want to eat. Right. The parts you don't want to eat. Then you'd also need salt, two to three tablespoons of unsalted butter, two pounds of yellow onions, uh, black That's pepper a lot of taste. Onions. Yes. Mm-hmm. Two tablespoons of Hungarian sweet paprika. Is that mm-hmm. distinct Different. from yes. normal paprika? Yes. Okay. There are various kinds of paprika. I one that, teaspoon but... of hot paprika or cayenne. Oh. And one cup of chicken broth and half a cup of sour cream. Mm. So you're going to salt the chicken pieces well and set them at room temperature while you cut up the onions. Okay. And that's to drain some of that excess uh, liquid out of them. Goop. Yep. And then you're going to slice the onions lengthwise, top to root, right? Okay. So you're making really thin, right, like, you know, yeah. long slices. Heat a large saute pan over medium-high heat and melt the butter. When the butter's hot, pat the chicken pieces with dry paper towels. Okay. Place them skin side down in the pan. Let the chicken cook for four and a half to five minutes on one side until it's well brown. Then turn them over and do the same thing on the other side. It only takes two to two and a half minutes to do that. Right, because you only got to get there. Right. Take care, though, that when you're turning them, you kind of want that skin to stay on there. To stay so, on the chicken? Yep, to stay on the chicken. So make sure so you know. So stay crispy. Right. So you're not sticking to the pan too much. Remove the chicken from the pan to a bowl and set it aside. Then you're going to add the sliced onions to the saute pan and cook them, stirring occasionally. Scraping up all the browned bits of the chicken. That you didn't stay on the chicken. Right. Until lightly browned. It takes about seven minutes to get to a lightly browned uh, onion. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, add the paprika and some black pepper to the onion uh, mixture and stir to combine. Then add the chicken broth. Again, scraping up any brown bits from the bottom of the pan. Oh, Do then, all the scrapings. Then you nestle the chicken pieces into the pan on top of the onions. Cover and cook on a low simmer for 20 to 25 minutes. When the chicken is cooked to at least 165 degrees. Which is the, uh, so the, buy a thermometer, people. If you don't yeah, have a meat, meat thermometer, thermometer, buy oh, one. Not you should yeah. not be cooking with any yeah. kind of meat, really, without a it meat thermometer. Right. But especially so much, chicken because yeah. of salmonella. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the chicken is done, remove it from the pan. Allow the pan to cool for a minute. And then slowly stir in the sour cream to add, and add salt to taste. If the sour cream cools the sauce too much, turn the heat back on. So you can get it warmed up, but you want that warm. And then you serve it with dumplings or rice or egg noodles or potatoes. Oh, so any starch, really. The starch of your choice. Starchy. (laughs) So those are my two, like, main main courses. Okay. I do have have three other things, and these are particularly because we're coming in this season where I think this is important. So I have three alcohol recipes. (laughs) So I have the Raven Cocktail. Ooh. Okay, and this is actually based on the fact that Edgar Allan Poe actually got thrown out of West Point. Okay. Um, when he was a cadet there because he really loved brandy. Oh. And the funny thing is, so he would come to uh-huh. morning, 
uh, drills and shit, drills and shit hung over. <laughs> that would be a problem, yeah. And the guy who sold it to him was a guy named Benny Havens. Okay. And Benny Havens had also been kicked out of West Point for making brandy <laughs> on campus. And so when Benny was kicked out, he went just far enough off of campus uh-huh. that it wouldn't matter if they got caught <laughs> and set up a tavern. And so Edgar Allan Poe would always go grab uh-huh. Benny Haven's best brandies. Uh, so this is, and this is just, each of these are for one drink. So, uh-huh. you know, if you're going to make more, you need to make more. Multiply. So the Raven cocktail is three blackberries, three to five mint leaves, one and a half ounces of brandy, a half a cup of pomegranate juice chilled, and a teaspoon of simple syrup. Ooh, that mm. sounds good. Right. So then you're going to muddle the blackberries and the mint together. Okay. Um, and then you're going to pour them into your glass. Okay. And then you're going to take the brandy and the pomegranate juice, and you're going to chill that. Okay. So that it's nice and cold, mm-hmm. um, with your teaspoon of simple syrup, and then you're gonna strain that over top of your blackberries and mint leaves. Cool. I'm into it. Okay. Totally into it. The next one is called Dracula's Blood. Mm, Notice how I've kept these yes, going. You got, got, got a real got thing, thing going here. So Dracula's Blood is two fluid ounces of vodka, three quarters of a fluid ounce of peach schnapps. Isn't schnapps also vodka? No, no. schnapps is something entirely different. Okay. Schnapps is schnapps. Schnapps is just schnapps. And then uh, uh, three to four fluid ounces of cranberry juice. You're going to mix that together over ice and then serve it. Nice. Nice. And the last one is called Dracula's Kiss, (laughs) which is one ounce of black cherry vodka. Ooh, already a good start. Half an ounce of grenadine. A very good start. Very good start. Coca-Cola. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And maraschino cherries for garnish. This so what you're going to do? Alcoholic cherry coke. <laughs> what you're going to do is you're going to coat the entire bottom of your glass with grenadine. Okay. Then you're going to add the ice and vodka. Then you're going to pour the coke in, but you're going to pour it in over the back of a spoon. Oh. So it's going to give you three different levels. You're going to have the grenadine, mm-hmm. which is the the red level at the very uh-huh. bottom. You're going to have your black cherry vodka, which is very, very dark, dark. Tone, mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. dark purple. Okay. And then your Coke on top, which Ooh. is even darker, right? And then you're going to garnish it with a couple of maraschino cherries and gulp it down. I think that's Oh, wrong. sip it. Sorry, sip, sip it down. Sip it. That sounds very good. Very delicious. And we've got to get all the components. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I like these. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. That's not very good. Could have skipped the food and just got straight to these. Straight to the alcohol. That's right. That's right. Oh my gosh. Okay, so I think it's your turn for your second story. So, I am reading a post that was made by the user Linear Equalist on Reddit. It is the true tale of their haunted house. Ooh. So, it's written in first person. So, these things did not happen to me. They happened to Linear Equalist. And we'll make an announcement at the end of the story as well. (laughs) When I was eight years old, my family moved into the house I grew up in. It wasn't an old house, and no one had died in it, and it didn't even feel creepy. Just an average suburban house in your average southern suburbs. The first time anything really happened in the house, I was about nine and had lost my last tooth. Still being a kid, of course, the tooth fairy was expected. So when I woke up in the middle of the night and saw a figure standing in the middle of my room, I assumed it was the tooth fairy. It was bald and only about three or four feet tall and about the size of an average child standing completely still in the middle of my room. I remember my parents telling me that if I was awake, the tooth fairy wouldn't leave me any money, so I rolled over and went back to sleep. 
When I got up the next morning, I excitedly told my parents that I'd seen the tooth fairy the night before. I described what I'd seen, but they told me it was just a dream. For the next several years after that, I continued seeing and hearing minor things in the house. When I was home alone, cabinet doors would open and close. I'd hear dishes being moved around in the kitchen or catch movement out of the corner of my eye. The most common was often at night, I'd wake up to see a young woman hovering over my bed. She was dressed like Rosie the Riveter character from the old posters from the 1940s with the red and white bandana around her hair and a denim shirt. When I would see her, she'd stare at me for a few minutes and then slowly float over my body and out through the wall behind me. I was never afraid of her, though. When I was about 12, my parents divorced, and it was just me and my mother living in the house. By the time I was in my late teens, my mother was rarely home, and my house became the hangout for me and my friends, most nights everyone gathering together to play Dungeons and Dragons or something similar after work. One night, we were hanging out, but didn't want to play, so I pulled out a Ouija board I'd picked up at the local toy store a few weeks before, wanting to try it out. We sat in my room to play with the lights out and the door closed, and it went pretty normally, nothing crazy happening for the most part. The only strange thing that happened was at one point we asked something like, show yourself, and at that point we heard the front door open and close, and heavy footsteps come down the hall towards my room. The handle of my door started to turn, and one of the guys jumped up and locked the door before it could open. We didn't hear anything else, no footsteps moving away from the door or anything, and after a little while we turned on the light and opened the door to see if my mother had come home unexpectedly. The house was empty, and the front door locked. We decided we'd had enough of that game at that point and put it up and everyone went home. A few weeks later, we were hanging out at my house again, this time playing Dungeons and Dragons. The one of the girls that usually came had to work late and had classes in the morning, so she said she wouldn't be coming. While we were sitting in the living room to play, at around 2 in the morning, suddenly we heard footsteps run across my wooden front porch. It sounded like someone very short or a small child running quickly. Everyone in the room heard it, and we had a conversation as to if our friend had changed her mind, and it just arrived, as she was very short. And it made more sense than a child running through the neighborhood at that time of night. When she never came into the house, we all got up to look, and there was no one outside, and her car wasn't in the yard. Her boyfriend, who was with us, gave her a call and verified that it wasn't her, as she just arrived home on the other side of town and was headed to bed. Around this time, the activity in the house picked up. I saw shadow figures with red eyes often in the living and dining room of the house, footsteps and other noises at all hours of the day or night. I started waking up in my room to see hooded figures standing near my window and door. It was around this time my half-brother, who I was close to, passed away. It was sudden, and I hadn't seen him in years as he'd gotten into drugs, and my mother had decided to keep me away from him because she didn't want him to be a bad influence on me. After that, I'd wake up hearing his voice saying my name in the middle of the night often. On a whim one night, I sat down and typed out a letter to him on my computer that was in my bedroom, since I was home alone that night and was bored. Now, this computer was hooked up to an old dot matrix printer, one of the really loud kind that makes all kinds of racket when it's running. After I wrote the letter, I felt silly for it and deleted it without saving or printing it and shut down the computer before I went to bed. Around three in the morning, I woke up and my bed was soaking wet. At first, I thought my puppy had peed on the bed because he was too small to get down, even though he was housebroken and I'd taken him out just before bed. I got up to let him outside and change my bed sheets when I realized the wet was just water, and it was more than a tiny puppy could have made. On my way to take my blankets to the laundry room, I passed the bathroom in my hallway and noticed the light was on, even though I turned off all the lights before bed. There sitting on the counter was a pitcher from the kitchen with the inside still wet. When I was really young, my brother used to wake my sister and I up by throwing water on us because it made me laugh. When I got back into my room and started making my bed, I noticed a piece of paper laying on top of my printer. It was the letter that I'd written to him and never saved or printed. The computer was still shut down, and the printer was off, but it had been printed out, torn off the printer, and laid on top of it as if someone had read it. 
The normal things like this continued for a few years when I lived there off and on before turning dark shortly before I moved out of the house for good. The hooded figures appeared more often. I woke up one night with the feeling that I was being stared at, only to roll over and see what looked like a rotting corpse a few inches from my face. And one night woke up to a hooded man standing at the foot of my bed with my bedroom door open when it had been closed before. He held up his hand and a ball of blue light appeared in his palm, which he threw at my face. He and the ball disappeared just before it hit me, but the room was so cold that I could see my breath on a normally hot southern summer night. When I was in my early 20s, after I moved out for good, I had one last experience in the house. My mother hadn't been to the house in months and was preparing to sell it. I told one of my cousins about the things that had happened there through the years, and he decided that one night, out of boredom, he and a friend of his would pick me up to go ghost hunting in the house while it was empty. We each had a camera, and he had a voice recorder that we'd brought. We set the recorder in my old bedroom and spent an hour or two wandering around the house taking pictures. When we got done, we came back to my room and sat to listen to the recording and discuss all the nothing that we'd found. On the recording, we could hear our voices moving from room to room and talking about how my cousin's friend's camera made a sexy shutter sound and the fact that my camera stopped working almost as soon as we walked in the door. About 20 minutes into the recording, when we could hear all three of our voices echoing from the other side of the house, a deep voice that sounded like it was right up against the microphone on the recording spoke, Get the fuck out. We immediately obliged. I found out a few years later that my mom actually had several experiences in that house with waking up to find an older man in his 50s or 60s looking through her closet or seeing him just wandering around the house. When she'd say anything or get his attention, he'd turn around and look at her and then vanish. She always thought she was just dreaming or something. But with everything I saw over the years at that house, I can't help but think it was something else. Wow. Yeah. And again, house. we want to remind... This was not my experience. These were the experiences of Linear Equalist on Reddit. On Reddit. Who lived in apparently of a like the spookiest spooky. of all spooky houses. All right. The next story is a reinterpretation by me... Yes. ...of The Monkey's Paw by W.W. W. Jacobs. There was a family who lived in a farmhouse far from any neighbor's. On stormy nights, the power would flicker ominously, and the path from the road to their house became thick with mud. And while it was true that this small family, a father, mother, and son of about 20 years of age, were isolated, they were all quite happy in each other's company. Now, one windy, rainy evening, the father and son were sitting and playing a game of chess. The mother was knitting. Like you do. Like you do. And they were awaiting the arrival of a friend of the father's. And he said to his son, listen to that sound, that howling. I, I don't think my friend is going to be able to come and see us this evening. But... Lo and behold, a few moments later, there was a knock at the door. And so the father got up, and he went and answered the door, and came back with his friend in tow, who was a very tall, uh, burly man who had very serious, intent eyes. And he said to his family, This is my friend, Sergeant Major Morris. He's a dear friend of mine. All of them shook hands with the major, and they sat down in the room where they had been entertaining themselves mm -hmm. and warming themselves by the fire on this cold night. The father went off to get some glasses and some whiskey, and so they sat down to enjoy one another's companies, and the sergeant began to regale them with stories. Being about, a good guest. Yes, being a good guest. And regaling them with stories about his time in India and other various places around the world and the wars in which he had fought. The father just 
leaning forward, fascinated by his friend's many adventures, said, I should like to see some of those places myself. India sounds fascinating. What was it you mentioned the other night? Something about a paw of some kind, wasn't it? Nothing, said the soldier quickly. Nothing worth hearing. Monkey's paw? asked the mother curiously. And the sergeant major sighed and kind of rolled his eyes and said... Part of never mind, didn't you? <laughs> yes, he said, well, it's just a bit of what you might call magic, I suppose. All three of his listeners leaned forward, perking up deep in thought, the soldier realizing he'd caught their attention. He set down his glass again and paused and then put his hand into his pocket and withdrew something and held it out on his open palm. It's nothing much to look at. It's just a small, dried monkey's paw. The mother drew back with a look of disgust. <laughs> but the son, ever bold, reached forward and took the object, examining it curiously. What's so special about it, then? said the father after he took the mm -hmm. object from the sun. But the soldier looked at the family before his sigh again and said, well, a very holy man put a spell on the paw. You see, he wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives and that when they try to change it, well, things don't always turn out the way they expect. The sun scoffed. Fate. But Never. the soldier waved that away before leaning forward, his voice low and intent. The spell allows three different people to have three wishes each. Hmm. With those words, the family suddenly laughed because they assumed it was a joke. But then they realized the soldier believed what he was saying, but the son scoffed again. Well... Why don't you have three then, sir? Mm -hmm. The soldier raised his head, looking at the young man with a face gone ashen. I have, he said. The mother, smiling politely, said, Were you granted three wishes then? I was, the soldier replied, picking up his discarded whiskey glass and gulping down the rest of its contents. And has anybody else wished? she asked. Well, the soldier replied, the first man had three wishes. I don't know the first two, but the third was for death. That's how I got the paw. The father regarded the paw still held in his hand. Well, if you've had your three wishes, then it's no good to you now. Why do you keep it? A souvenir, the soldier said. I did consider selling it, but I've changed my mind. If you could have another three wishes, asked the father, would you use them? I don't know, replied the soldier. And then, suddenly, he snatched the paw between thumb and forefinger and threw it into the nearby fireplace. The father gave a cry of alarm, bent down and picked up the paw before it could be destroyed, examined it, made sure it was still intact, and then said, Well, since you don't want it anymore, give the thing to me. I won't, said the soldier. I threw it in the fire. Better to leave it to burn. Be sensible. Throw it back in. But the father refused. Since you don't want it. You threw it away in my house. It's mine now. I'll have a go of using it. How does it work? The soldier said, fine. You hold it in your right hand and you speak your wish very loudly. But if you must make a wish, make it something sensible. And with that, they sat down. The father put the paw in his pocket and they finished the rest of their evening. Which it must have been a tense evening. Oh, yes. 
after the gentleman left, the son said, "Well, you might as well wish something, right? right? What do you What do you want to wish? You, if you asked for a million dollars, mother would stop complaining about the bills." <laughs> the father looked at his family, looked at his belongings, and said, "Think I have anything that I need to wish for? I have everything I could possibly want." So the son replied, "Make a wish." For your final payment on your house, it's almost done. You have one more payment to make. Wish for that. Well, that's a pretty sensible, pretty wish, sensible right? wish. It's it's you know modest. And so the father, in the light of the fireplace, stood holding the paw in his right hand, and he said, "I wish for five hundred dollars." And then a scream came out of his mouth, and the mother and the son came running back. What's happened? What's wrong? The paw, he said. It squirmed in my hand. I made a wish, and it squirmed. And the son—it's not, not ideal behavior for a mummified, desiccated monkey's paw. No, no. And the son and the mother—they thought, "Oh, you were just spooked. It's、mm-hmm. fine. Don't worry about it." The man put the paw very carefully on the mantelpiece and backed away to follow his family. The next day, the family—the mother, the son—gets up. And the, goes to work in the town because he works in a factory, and the father and the mother are older, so that he's、they're、the、retired. father. Yeah, they're retired, so the father is around home doing、mm-hmm. chores, taking care of things. They are at their midday meal. They notice that there is a man kind of walking back and forth on right in front of the path, you know, near up, the road up to their house. Up to their house, but finally he does come to the door. He knocks, and so they open. They invite the man in, and he sits down and. They wait patiently for the man to state his business, and he says with a very serious tone, "I was asked to come and see you. My employer owns the factory in town." The mother sat up in alarm because the man had taken on a distressed look、mm-hmm. on his face, and she said, "Well, that's where our son works. What's what is it? Has、mm-hmm. something happened to him? Is he hurt?" The visitor lowered his head and then. Nodded in agreement. Yes, he was hurt badly. I'm so sorry. You should know he's not in pain anymore. And at first, the wife exclaims, "Oh, thank you, goodness! My son is all right. He's..." And then it dawns what he has said dawns upon her. That's why these euphemisms are bad. And tears begin to glisten in the corners of their eyes and begin to fall down their cheeks as they listen to the man. And he says. Yes, I'm so sorry, your son. He was caught in the machinery. We called for help, but by the time they had arrived, he was gone. The father transferred his arm around the mother's shoulder, pulling her into him as she began to sob. The visitor looked up and nodded. And I speak for the owner and everyone at the company. We are so sorry that this has happened. Obviously, there are many details and papers that need to be signed, but. I was also sent to give this to you. In addition to delivering this horrifying news, you see, the owner began a profit-sharing program, and the bonuses were due to go out soon. And so, considering in light of the situation, the the owner wanted you to have this check. Father draws back, removing his arm from his wife's shoulders, stands up on shaky legs, and he looks at the man and says, "How much is that check?" For five hundred dollars, the man replied. So several days passed. There was a new cemetery in town, about two miles from the family's home, and this is where the mother and father interred their beloved and only son with a quiet graveside service. And then they went back to their lives as people do. But the house seemed empty and 
they didn't talk much to each other anymore. Over a week went by, and one night the father found himself awakened. Suddenly, in the night, his wife's side of the bed was empty, and in the darkness he could hear her weeping. And so he said, come back to bed. You'll be cold. It's colder for my son, the woman says. And the man sighed and laid back down in bed, was beginning to drift off to sleep again when he heard his wife gasp. <gasps> the paw, the woman declared. The monkey's paw. And the man sat up in alarm. What? Where is it? What's the matter? And the woman hurried to the bed, almost falling in her haste. I want it, she said to her husband. You didn't destroy it, did you? The man thought about his wife's question. It's in the living room on the shelf above the fireplace where I left it. Why? Clapping her hands, the woman laughed, bending over to kiss the man's cheek. I just thought of it. Why didn't I think of it before? Why didn't you think of it? She demanded. <laughs> you dummy. <laughs> think of what? He asked. The other two wishes. You've only used one. Was that not enough? He demanded angrily. Used one wish and got my son killed? No, she cried. Go down and get it, quickly, and wish our boy alive. The man sat up, throwing the blankets aside and standing on shaky legs. Have you gone mad? He cried, horrified. No, she said. We'll have one more left. Go and get it, and wish my boy alive again. The man leaned over to the bedside lamp and turned it on and looked at his wife. You don't know what you're asking. But the woman grasped her husband's hands and looked at him with imploring eyes. We had the first wish granted, she proclaimed with desperation. Why not the second? That was a coincidence, he responded. That's Go, a ignorance, right? right? Go and get the paw. Make the wish, she said. The man looked at his wife, face gone white, and shook his head. He's been dead for almost ten days. You didn't go to the morgue, but the casket was closed for a reason. Get the paw and bring him back, she demanded again. So the man left the room, went downstairs to the fireplace. The monkey's paw was where he'd left it on the shelf. Horrible fear overcame him as he wrapped cold fingers around the desiccated monkey's paw. He found it hard to breathe, and cold sweat popped out on his forehead as he made his way back to the bedroom where his wife waited. His wife's face seemed changed. There was a feverish light in her eyes now. Wish, she demanded. It's foolish and it's wicked. Wish, she cried again. And so, tightening his fist around the paw, the man said, I wish my son alive again. And the cursed object wriggled against his palm. Dropping the awful paw onto the floor, the man backed away until his knees hit the bed and he sat. And then his wife, a gleam in her eyes, she went and sat in a chair. And so they waited. They waited through the night in the dark, for he had turned the light off. And they waited, and just after the woman had fallen asleep, and the man began to think that maybe, just maybe, it was going to be all right, a knock came to the front door. What's that? The wife exclaimed as she woke up. It's my son. My son. Is that it? He's down there. And he said, no, 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 it's a tree. It's a tree. It was nothing. And then another knock 
sounded. That is my son, she declared. My son, I must go and open the door. And so she ran to the door. She flung it open and she raced down the stairs to the front door. The man is now beside himself with fear. For if his son is truly on the other side of that door, what must he look like? Mm -hmm. Who might he be? What if it is not even his son anymore? And so desperate, he can hear her unlocking yeah, unlock, the door, unlatching, things, unlatching yeah. the top, and he's listening. And oh my God, she's on the last latch, but she, latch, but she can't reach it. It's very high, and she's a very tiny woman. <laughs> and so she's struggling. I can't reach the lock. And so he's like, no. And so he drops to the floor and begins searching, searching feeling around for the paw. And then, as he's feeling, he can hear the wife dragging a chair across the room in front of the door and standing upon it and struggling to re to release the latch. And then, finally, just as he hears the latch go back, he grabs the paw, lifts it up, holds it in his hand, and as he hears her going for the door and twisting the knob, he says, I wish my son dead and buried again. And the wife opens the door, and nothing but the wind travels up the stairs. Sensible wishes. <laughs> yep. That is one of my favorite stories. Yeah, I know it is. <laughs> and you acted the shit out of it. <laughs> oh, I can't help it. I love it. So. Find some spooky items to spruce up your life through our Tiger Lorelei from the Georgia-based shop Otherworld Creations. This shop features jewelry, altarpieces, devotional art, and decorative items fashioned out of bones, teeth, claws, and fur of departed creatures. Lorelei believes that these remains have their own energy and spirit, the same way that plants and stones do, and these can be tapped into and worked with. Most of the remains used in Otherworld Creations are found already dead, and some are traded from hunters who would otherwise discard these remains. You can follow Otherworld Creations on Instagram at Otherworld underscore Creations Co. Find them on Facebook or contact Otherworld Creations Co. at gmail.com for inquiries or commissions. I think it's time for Odes Stone Corner! Today we're going to talk about obsidian. Obsidian is volcanic glass. It's formed when lava cools, but it doesn't crystallize. Mm -hmm. And it creates this very, very brittle, very, very dark glass. You can occasionally find clear obsidian, but mostly it comes in dark green to brown or black coloration, unless it has various impurities. Like a snowflake obsidian has crystals that have grown up in the regular obsidian. Has a mose of about six, but because it's very brittle, it's Usually, it doesn't handle impacts very well, so you can nap obsidian. That's a method for shaping stone, napping. Yep. You can nap obsidian into extremely sharp but very brittle tools and weapons. So it's uh, it was often used as arrowheads or knives or things like that. So okay. similar to flint? Uh-huh. Yep. Okay. okay. Gotcha. So it's strong, but it's very, very brittle, so it breaks easily on impact and things like that. The way to distinguish obsidian from jet, which it's often mistaken for... Yes, we've had this We've discussion. had this discussion. Gwen and I have, <laughs> trying to figure out, like, is this jet or is this obsidian? Hmm. So the difference is that, like, tumbled obsidian is shiny, whereas tumbled jet is matte. It has a matte finish. Obsidian weighs, like, it's slightly heavier than jet is. And obsidian can be, though is not always, semi-transparent. So it can be semi-translucent to opaque, whereas jet is always opaque. Probably the easiest way to tell, since you're mostly going to be dealing with tumbled specimens, is the, the shiny versus the matte finish. Big thing with obsidian that pretty much 
everyone knows, I think, is that it's a good absorber of negative energy. Mm-hmm. It is one of those that absorbs negative energy or it mostly, it mostly absorbs negative energy. It's good for storing sort of any energy. Like it, excess energy? Excess energy, yeah. It sort of defaults to negative energy, but you could probably put other kinds of energy into it, but you're not going to get it back is the thing. So mm-hmm. obsidian doesn't store things and then release them. It's It stores them forever, mm-hmm. permanently in the stone. And eventually it can get sort of full mm-hmm. or heavy or sticky, at which point it's generally best to get rid of that piece of obsidian, either bury it in the earth somewhere or chuck it in a river or down a well or whatever. You can't clean it? No, uh, at least not in my experience. Obsidian is not like you can't cleanse out the energy you put into it. Mm. It just it just really holds onto it. It's like a like a permanent container. Okay. So some stones you can charge with energy and then take that and like retrieve that energy mm-hmm. later. Obsidian is like a one-way circuit. It mm-hmm. does not release energy. Gotcha. Like at all. And that's really obsidian's big use. Like it's not, in my experience, obsidian is not a stone that really helps you with things. It just serves this, it provides this function. Gotcha. It's not, in my experience, a protective stone. Some people use obsidian for protection. I prefer something like a tourmaline for that. My experience with obsidian has been that it is purely, essentially, an energy container. Okay, so some stuff showing up on the Discord. Finn okay. has a rainbow. Rainbow Obsidian Egg. Yes, Rainbow Obsidian is the same kind of volcanic glass that has various impurities in it. Gotcha. And then Justin said that Obsidian scalpels were used by Egyptians for mummification. Yes, that is true, because you could get a very, very sharp, very fine edge with Obsidian that was not possible with other kinds of stone. Gotcha. And then Hermandith said it's the difference between a bucket and a sponge. So you throw everything into the bucket, but a sponge you can wring out. So that's how it holds energy? That kind of an idea? Sort of, yeah. But like a bottomless bucket. <laughs> okay. Like if if obsidian is a bucket, it's a bucket that every time you pour something in, maybe more like a well, every time you pour something into it, it goes beyond a place where you can access it it anymore. Okay. And then Pocket Witch asked, uh, if you smash obsidian, would the energy come out? I've never thought about that. Or would it just be contained in the individual shards? I feel like the energy would then still be in the the shards shards of the obsidian, Mm -hmm. but you would probably get some kind of backlash. Like you would probably get get some kind of, not a release of energy, but like that energy fracturing would right. have Consequ- consequences. Right. Of, yeah, it would, it would exactly. It would create its own kind of, right. of mm-hmm. energy results. Yeah. Not like a long-term one, but because my understanding, and maybe I've misunderstood something I've read in the past, was that you could, like, bury it in salt and cleanse the obsidian or use smoke and that kind of thing. But it really is a receptacle, like a permanent yeah. little black hole. Basically, yeah. <laughs> that's At least that's my experience with obsidian, is mm-hmm. that, like, once it gets to a point where it's no longer accepting energy, which does not necessarily mean that, like, it can't contain any more energy, like, in general, but at least it, my experience has been, that, like, it's not going to accept any more energy from me or my environment. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that means it's permanently full or if it just needs to Rest. spend yeah, spend a couple of centuries <laughs> not getting right. used. My experience has been that, like, bury it in the earth and just leave it there. All right. And get a new piece. All right. So that's it for Oats Stone Corner! <laughs> and then we have... <laughs> <laughs> and then we have one more tale. We do. We do, we do have a tale. I'm going to sit back and enjoy this yes. True. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous. I had been and am. But why will you say that I'm mad? The disease has sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. 
Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all the things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily and how calmly I tell you the whole story. Always a good open. <laughs> yes. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain. But once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object there was none. Passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eyes. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madman know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a small dark lantern, all closed, closed, that no light shone out, and then I thrust my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening, so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a man-man have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work. For it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So, you see, he would have been very profoundly old, indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph to think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick of darkness, for the shutters were closed, fastened through fear of robbers. And so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening and the old man sprang up in bed crying out, Who's there? I kept quiet and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle. And in the meantime, and I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed listening, just as I had done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a single, a slight groan and I knew that it was the groan of mortal terror. 
It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew that sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it was welled up from my own bosom, deepening within its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise, when he had turned in his bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. I had been trying to fancy them cautious, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. Or, it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he never saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot out from the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctiveness, all dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon that damned spot. And have I not told you that w what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of sense? Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased with fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet I refamed and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well that I have told you that I am nervous? So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst, and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by my neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell I threw open the lantern and leapt upon the room, he screeched once, only once. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, it was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. 
There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut the head off and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all of the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could detect anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. <laughs> when I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men, who introduced themselves with perfect civility as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. A suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled, for what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shrink, I said, was my own dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure and undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought the chairs into the room and desired them here to rest for them from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own feet upon the very spot beneath which his reposed corpse had been placed. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My heart ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat and chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definitiveness until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No, I doubt, I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such as a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men. But the noise steadily increased. Oh, God, what could I do? I foamed. I raved. I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose all around and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard it not? Almighty God, no. They heard, they suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought and this I think, but anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. 
I could hear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die, and now again, hark! Louder! 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 Villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more! I admit my deed, tear up the planks! Here, here is the beating heart of this hideous heart. Nice. Edgar Allan Poe again. Yes, the that's the telltale heart. heart. Yep. <laughs> Which, speaking of acting the shit out of it. <laughs> so, you went really hard there at the end. Hardcore, hardcore. I mean, you had the voice of, you know, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. Well, I mean, that's how the story is I written. Also, I had wholly forgotten that he threw a bed on the man. I forgot that was how he did his murder. How strong is this dude? <laughs> Oh, goodness, so goodness. To recover from all of this spooky storytelling with some uplifting tunes provided by our Tiger Allure driver through the music of Aquagirl. Aquagirl is an indie pop musician with a very chill, listenable synth tone married to lyrics that are by turns hopeful and honest. All of Aquagirl's tracks have their charms, but Ode suggests, I think I'm a part of you, an encouraging piece about reconnecting with the parts of yourself. You can find Aquagirl at aqua-girl.bandcamp.com Well, I hope this has been enjoyable for people. Yes. I think your father and I went a little long <laughs> in our classic long tales. Our classic tales. The good ones. Spooky stories. So thank you again to uh, Mother Multiverse for the suggestion. Yes. 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 And uh, we'll see you all again next yes. week in yep. November. In November. Yes, in November. But in the meantime, where can they find us? Yes. Uh, they can find us anywhere that you can type in three pagans and a cat on Google. That's three. Three pagans and a cat dot com. The number, the number three, three pagans and a cat dot com. Uh, so yeah, that's the that's the website which we've now said that so many times we can say it in sync. That's yep. right. Um, yeah, 60, of course, you can four episodes in here. Yeah. yeah, you can find the individual links and in the episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have Redbubble and Twitter, Twitter and YouTube, Facebook, Facebook, and YouTube. Facebook group. And our Patreon, which, again, yes. we are right, yes. so grateful for our patrons, many of whom have, have stuck it out with us mm-hmm. as we've been dramatic tonight. And, uh, and for remember, unusual. remember that we're doing the Yuling again this year. So if you'd like to sign up for that, you can go to tinyurl.com slash threepackyule. That's the number three, P-A-A-C, Yule. The submissions for that will be open until December 1st. On December 2nd, you will receive your partners in the Yuling. And by December 15th, your gifts for your friends should be in the mail. Yep. Yep. And if you, for some reason, can't do it after you've signed up, please mm-hmm. contact Ode ASAP PDQ. No, no derision, shame. no yeah. shame, no nothing. Just let Ode know so that we can make sure that everybody gets something. That's yep. right, because we want to make sure everybody who's participating actually yep. receives a gift. Yep. yep. And because we are international... Right. Um, you may have to ship somewhere unusual. Somewhere yep. unusual. Yep. How many people do we have signed up right now? Do you know? Uh, over 60. Wow. Over 60. Yep. Wow, so. you guys are amazing, Pride. Yep. You are amazing. All right, that's it for us. I'm going to turn off this yes. thing now. Well, okay. first, though, we have to say Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. That's the whole okay. point of this. Happy Halloween. Happy, Happy Halloween. Halloween. Ready? Ready? Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. <laughs> Happy Halloween. <laughs> are you okay. trying to get us to say it together? Let's say it together. Let's say it. One, two, three. three. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. He's close still, enough. I did it on purpose. <laughs> He's still going. 
fine. All right. Oh, my God. Stop. Just call it on that. Right. It's there. You've been listening to Three Pagans and a Cat. Find out more information at www.threepagansandacat.com.